Hello, and welcome back to Assassinations Podcast. This is the second and concluding part of our look at the life and death of Harvey Milk, the US politician who was killed by a political rival in City Hall, San Francisco, California, in 1978. A quick correction from the episode last week. I said that Harvey Milk was the first gay person elected to public office in the United States. I was wrong on that count. I believe that the first LGBT people to be elected were Elaine Noble, a state representative in Massachusetts, and Alan Speer, a state senator in Minnesota. Both ran successfully as out candidates in 1974. Milk was the first openly gay person to be elected in the state of California. Stay tuned during the mid-roll of the show, when I'll be telling you about two exclusive bonus episodes for our Patreon supporters. Our patrons will also receive a sneak preview of the theme of our next season. So, we now return to our investigation, in which we will find out about the strangely significant role of Jim Jones and his People's Temple in San Franciscan public life in the 1970s, and the political disputes in City Hall that led to the assassination of Harvey Milk. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings. and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. In an era of radical politics and bizarre cults, the People's Temple managed to stand out. Founded by James Warren Jones, a charismatic preacher from Indiana, who moved his congregation to California in 1963, the People's Temple spread a message that mixed faith healing and exuberant praise services with a message of racial harmony and socialism. His congregation grew and grew, eventually finding a home in a huge former Masonic temple in downtown San Francisco, where Pastor Jim preached to a large, multiracial congregation. His grab bag of Marxian phraseology, biblical teachings, revivalist hokum, and sensational displays of so-called healing of the sick and disabled turned Jones into a celebrity, and not just in the Bay Area. 
he became a darling of the radical left, who loved his gospel of socialism even if they were less keen on his dubious displays of spiritual gifts. He was awarded various humanitarian awards for his work to promote racial harmony, even as he increasingly exploited his largely black congregation to boost his own out-of-control ego. Perhaps inevitably for a church so focused upon the charisma of its leader, Pastor Jim soon turned into Jim Jones, Messiah and God Incarnate. Always wearing his trademark sunglasses, Jones used his temple as a base upon which to build significant influence in San Francisco. In exchange for political favours, Jones offered his congregants as campaign fodder for politicians seeking election in the city. Temple followers raised funds, handed out leaflets, knocked on doors, and enrolled voters for such prominent politicians as state representative and future Clinton-era cabinet member Art Agnos and San Francisco Mayor George Moscone. There were even rumours that members of the People's Temple did more than lend a hand. Some claimed that they were bussed into the city to take up temporary residence in order to vote for whichever candidate their glorious leader had deigned to favour. Another politician to whom Jones lent his support was Harvey Milk. As we heard last week, Milk had only been resident in San Francisco for a few months when he decided to run for the Board of Supervisors in 1973. There were just 11 supervisors for a city of 700,000 residents, and election to the board was something that most politicos aspired to after putting in some serious hard graft for whichever party machine they'd hitched their wagon to. Milk on the other hand, decided to run without any support from the Democratic Party apparatus or the city's significant gay rights movement. Having failed to win election to the board in 73, he tried again in 1975. Still without much backing from within the establishment, Milk ran a strong independent campaign based almost entirely on his own efforts though he was bolstered by a relatively small cadre that he had attracted based on his larger-than-life personality. The 75 campaign was markedly different from his failed effort two years earlier. The first go-around, Milk was attired as an ageing hippie, but by the time of his second run at elected office he had transformed himself, into a clean-cut professional politician. Still based out of his Castro camera business, which looked far more like a campaign headquarters than any sort of legitimate commercial enterprise, he won the backing of an array of allies from trade unionists to local business owners to gay activists to older working-class residents of the city. The 1975 race was marked by one of the most controversial episodes in Milk's political career. 
During a stop-off in San Francisco in September 22nd of that year, US President Gerald Ford was nearly assassinated by Sarah Jane Moore. Moore fired off one round at the President as he stood outside the St. Francis Hotel in the city. That shot missed its target, and as the would-be assassin raised her weapon to fire again, a man standing nearby grabbed her arm. The handgun went off, but the bullet missed Ford, instead hitting and injuring a nearby taxi driver. The man who very likely saved the president's life was Oliver Sipple. A former Marine who had served in Vietnam, Sipple was then living in San Francisco as an openly gay man. Active in the movement for civil rights for gay people, Sipple had a close connection to Harvey Milk. As well as backing him in his campaigns for the Board of Supervisors in 1973 and 75, Sipple and Milk also had a shared love interest. Last week we encountered Joe Campbell, who was Milk's lover in the late 50s and early 60s. This was the guy who would go on to feature in the Andy Warhol movie My Hustler, and, perhaps, be one of the inspirations for the Lou Reed song Walk on the Wild Side. Sometime after his breakup with Milk, Campbell began a relationship with Oliver Sipple. While Sipple was out and proud in San Francisco, his sexuality remained unknown to his parents back home in the Midwest. Therefore, the moment of fame that resulted from his saving the president's life also brought with it the risk that his family would find out about his other life on the West Coast. When Ford personally wrote to thank him for saving his life, Sipple was touched. He had the letter copied and distributed to friends and family, with the original framed and hung in a place of honour in his home. It was therefore a terrible betrayal of trust when Harvey Milk decided to make political capital of this spontaneous act of personal bravery by taking the cold-hearted decision to very publicly out Sipple in the media. According to one biographer, while discussing whether Sipple's sexual orientation should be publicly disclosed, Milk told a friend, quote, It's too good an opportunity. For once we can show that gays do heroic things, not just all that caca about molesting children and hanging out in bathrooms. So, Milk contacted a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper, saying that Sipple should be depicted as a gay hero. Much to Sipple's chagrin, the story was picked up in the national press. Back home, his family learned that he was a homosexual via newspaper innuendo. Doubtless, this placed great strains on family relationships that Sipple had chosen to keep separate from his life as a gay man in San Francisco. According to someone who knew him at the time, Sipple was, quote, completely shattered by the publication of his sexual identity, which resulted in his estrangement from several people in his family. Milk 
then doubled down on his actions. When Sipple was not invited to the White House, Milk, then in full campaigning mode, wrote in the Bay Area Reporter, Did that person get an invitation to the White House? No. Did that person get a phone call from the President? No. Did that person get a personal letter immediately thanking him? No. Oh, about a week or two later, and with much hullabaloo from the press, he did get a letter from the President, similar to letters sent to some of the police who later assisted. Short and almost form letters. This was, quite simply, a lie. Milk must have been quite aware that Ford had in fact written to Sipple just three days, not two weeks, after the assassination attempt. And we know that Milk knew this, because Milk was one of the people to whom Sipple had sent a copy of the President's letter, which was clearly dated September 25th, 1975. Moreover, Milk would have known that, far from feeling snubbed by Ford, Sipple was exceedingly proud of the fact that the President of the United States had written to him, even though Sipple did not consider himself to be a hero, only someone who reacted instinctively at just the right moment. It is a testament to Sipple's loyalty and dedication to gay rights that he continued to campaign for Milk, even after he found out that the aspiring politician had deliberately outed him and then tried to spin a fake scandal out of the whole affair. Despite this pot-stirring, as well as his almost superhuman campaigning efforts throughout 1975, Milk was once again unsuccessful in his bid for a seat on the Board of Supervisors. But he was not deterred. Far from it. He seemed more determined than ever to launch, almost immediately, into another election race. In 1976, he ran in the Democratic primary race to become the party's candidate for a district representing part of the city of San Francisco in the California State Assembly. Again, this campaign was powered by his dynamo personality. But by this time, Milk had also built up quite a reputation as a formidable political force within the city. Earlier that year, he had been appointed by Mayor Moscone to the San Francisco Board of Permit Appeals, a reward for support during the previous year's mayoral vote, thus making Milk the first openly gay city commissioner in the United States. Also appointed to a political sinecure, by way of thanks for his support during the campaign, Jim Jones was put on the board of the San Francisco Housing Authority, giving official imprimatur to a deranged snake oil salesman, feeding Jones's ego, and boosting his claims to be a saviour of the poor and downtrodden. The seat on the San Francisco Board of Permit Appeals brought with it a nice title, Commissioner Milk, and a boost to his standing amongst the gay community as the first out person to hold such a position. But it was a minor role, far beneath Milk's political aspirations. Perhaps more than anything else, 
the appointment represented a political stamp of approval that helped to establish him as a serious politician beyond his self-appointed status as the mayor of Castro Street. Milk had absolutely no intention of fulfilling his duties on the Board of Permit Appeals. Rather, he quickly sought to use the appointment as a mechanism to further his 1976 election campaign. In an effort to stymie the ambitions of those around him, the new Moscone administration had imposed a rule that all of those appointed to public roles were prohibited from running for election for any post. Therefore, so long as Milk remained on the Board of Permit Appeals, he was prohibited from standing for election. This rule was sheer hypocrisy on Moscone's part. He had stood for the mayoralty while serving as majority leader in the California State Senate. Milk knew that the ban on appointees running for office was nothing more than a control mechanism. Ever the opportunist, Milk reckoned that he could hoist Moscone on his own petard and gain political capital in the gay community by forcing the mayor to fire him. I would get more out of being fired than if I resigned, Milk told a political aide, and I'm gonna let him fire me. People will then be outraged. Recognising a political manoeuvre when he saw one, Moscone retaliated in kind. Booting Milk off the board, he then replaced him with a prominent rival gay activist thus depriving Milk of the opportunity to portray himself as the victim of homophobia. Then, Moscone threw his weight behind Milk's opponent in the 1976 Democratic primary race to become the party's candidate for the state assembly, Art Agnos. As we heard last time, Milk had played no part in the gay rights movement prior to his sudden decision to run for public office in 1973. In fact, so limited was Milk's activism within the gay community that the straight Agnos was able to portray himself as a more credible supporter of gay people. The Agnos campaign, backed by many seasoned gay activists, accused Milk of silence on equality issues whenever he addressed nominally straight audiences, such as labour unions or church groups. If Harvey Milk won't speak out for gay rights at the Labour Council in San Francisco, read an Agnos advertisement in the Bay Area Reporter, what will he do in Sacramento? Of course, Milk was perfectly entitled to run his campaign any way he saw fit, and not to limit himself to speaking on so-called gay issues. However, it is notable that a man who became an icon of the LGBT movement after his assassination was not seen as particularly active in that movement during his lifetime. As well as receiving the endorsement of Mayor Moscone and much of the city's gay rights movement, Agnos also received support from Jim Jones. But Jones was quite the political operator in his own right, and, in common with many backers of party candidates in US politics, he liked to hedge his bets. So, as well as pledging support to Agnos, Jones threw a bone to milk 
or rather, he sent a printing press and a small squadron of his people's temple followers to Castro Street to provide election material and free labour to hand it out on behalf of Milk's campaign. Yet again, Milk lost. Agnos, a conventional middle-of-the-road Democrat with long experience in state politics, won the primary and then the general election. But Milk made a very respectable showing, and he used his raised profile to catapult himself into the next political fray, his third run for election to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. In the four years since Milk first decided to run a makeshift campaign back in 73, much water had flowed under the bridge. By 1977, he was a far cry from the East Coast transplant pseudo-hippie of that first campaign. He had become a political entity, a brand as much as a man, who relentlessly ran for political office and who viewed defeat at the ballot box as nothing other than a stepping stone to the next, and even more professional, election battle. For the 77 campaign, Milk could now count on the support of a significant portion of the city's establishment, including some Democratic Party bigwigs and union bureaucrats. And, of course, he relied upon the ongoing benedictions of the Reverend Jones, which enabled him to finally clinch victory over 16 other candidates, gaining just 30% of the vote in District 5 of the city, which encompassed the Castro neighbourhood. Today, when we think about the church that Jim Jones built up, we tend to envisage a bizarre cult of personality led to their doom in the jungle of South America by a psychotic carnival barker. But, hard as it is to believe, in the 1970s, the People's Temple and its messianic leader were taken seriously, at least within a certain milieu, in San Francisco and wider Californian politics. This had less to do with what the temple believed in, that Jones was a miracle worker who could single-handedly unite and heal the world, and more to do with what the temple could offer career politicians, boots on the ground, a strictly disciplined church infrastructure, and votes. Harvey Milk was not alone in cultivating a politically expedient and beneficial relationship with Jim Jones. But he must take his share of responsibility for lending undeserved credence to a man who would soon become infamous as one of the worst mass murderers in American history. The People's Temple first established its outpost in Guyana, a former British colony on the Caribbean coast of South America, in the early 1970s. This was supposed to be a model community, a living example of the gospel that Jim Jones liked to preach. Peace, love and fellowship, all under his watchful eye, of course. Over the years, hundreds of temple members decanted from the Bay Area to South America, 
a process that accelerated in 1977 and 78 as Jones became increasingly paranoid, insisting that the man was out to destroy him and his followers. As it turned out, the man was Jones himself. Though Milk could not have foreseen the horror that would unfold in Guyana in November of 1978, when over 900 men, women and children either committed suicide or were butchered by temple thugs, there were many former congregants who had left the church, taking with them stories of psychological abuse and physical violence. And there were widespread accounts in the US and international media about the horrendous conditions at the commune that should have been deeply worrying to anyone concerned with the welfare of the largely poor, largely African-American congregation that had been lured to the jungle on the false promise that they were going to build a new Jerusalem. Harvey Milk had happily accepted the highly questionable support of Jones and his battalion of rent-a-campaigners. And in exchange, he acted as a lobbyist on behalf of the People's Temple. For example, in his newly acquired capacity as a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, Milk wrote to the Prime Minister of Guyana urging him to support the work of the People's Temple in his country. The commune had been a failure from the start. Hundreds of urban dwellers trying to build a rural utopia in an overgrown jungle was never going to succeed. There were widespread reports of disease, hunger and working conditions akin to slavery in the paradise that Jones had ordered his followers to build. In fact, Jonestown, as the dingy settlement had been immodestly named, relied less on the agricultural skills of the congregation and more on the social security checks that retired and disabled members of the church received through the post from Uncle Sam. In that letter, Milk praised the work that Jones had carried out in San Francisco and he urged the Guyanese leader to overlook any quote, mishaps. When rumours of dreadful abuses at Jonestown started to come to light, with the families of cult members desperately pleading with the US government to intervene in some way to save the lives of citizens held captive by the People's Temple, in February of 1978, Milk wrote to President Jimmy Carter in defence of Jim Jones. Falsely claiming to have no political ties to the People's Temple, Milk urged the President to dismiss claims against Jones, who was then in a custody battle with a woman in San Francisco who was seeking the return of her son from the looming nightmare that was Jonestown. Milk never troubled himself to travel to Guyana to witness for himself the utopia that he was so willing to defend in writing. Such backing, as well as the pandering of Art Agnos, Mayor Moscone, and other leading California politicians, as well as a host of write-on personalities of the time such as Jane Fonda and Angela Davis, gave official and celebrity credence 
to Jim Jones. And yet there were many other people, in San Francisco and beyond, with their eyes sufficiently open to recognise Jones for what he was, a fraud, a self-serving agitator, and a menace to his own congregation. Without the help of Milk, Moscone, and all too many others who should have known better, or cared more, would Jones have been able to maintain his iron grip over his unfortunate congregation, posing as their messiah? We can never know, but it certainly did Jones no harm to have powerful and influential politicians slapping him on the back, appointing him to official roles, and writing fawning letters on his behalf. Let's take a break. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have special content available to our Patreon supporters. In the first bonus episode, I will go into more detail about the two, yes, two, assassination attempts against President Gerald Ford that took place in California in 1975. I mentioned the failed attempt by Sarah Jane Moore in San Francisco on September the 22nd. Well, just 17 days previously, the president had very nearly been killed by Lynette Frome during a visit to Sacramento. Frome had been a member of the Manson family, the murderous cult led by petty criminal-turned-hippie guru Charles Manson. Both Moore and Frome led extremely odd lives, and yet their evolution was strangely emblematic of the wider countercultural movement of the post-war era, and its bloody and ignominious collapse by the 1970s. In the bonus episode, which comes out this Thursday, I will look at these two assassination attempts and try to untangle the threads that tie apparently isolated events together. Then, the following week, Patreon supporters will get a sneak preview of the theme and some of the subjects of the next season of the show. This bonus will also feature a recap of this season, in which I will share some of my own thoughts about the people, struggles and controversies that we've covered over the last few months. I hope that you will join me for these special episodes, which will be available to all of you who choose to give $1 or more per month to support this show. Just go to patreon.com slash assassinations podcast. Making a contribution allows you to gain access to bonus material, but more than anything else, making a pledge through Patreon is a way of showing your appreciation for Assassinations Podcast. Now, back to the show. San Francisco in the 1970s was a strange city. On the one hand, it was a place where the People's Temple could find a home and flourish. On the other, it was in many respects still quite conservative. The political rivalry between Harvey Milk and Dan White, 
The man who murdered him inside City Hall in 1978 was, in a way, expressive of this divide. It is very important to note that San Francisco in the 1970s was only just emerging as what we might term a progressive city. While many today think of San Francisco as the uber-liberal capital of woke America, back in the 60s and early 70s it was generally a fairly conservative town that tended to elect old-school Republicans and moderate Democrats. The hippies might have taken over Haight-Ashbury, and the gays might have flocked to the Castro, but the city as a whole was still home to a large working-class population, black and white, a significant community of Asian Americans, many of them small business owners, as well as a solid middle class of professionals working in commerce and finance. In line with these demographics, the political spectrum ran, by and large, from fiscally conservative Republican to blue-collar Democrat. What came to be known as progressive politics focused on what might be termed lifestyle or identity issues, was only just emerging when Harvey Milk was running for office. A core part of that progressive scene, as we have heard, was the People's Temple. If there was someone on the opposite end of the spectrum to the hippie burnouts and the Marxian cultists of San Francisco's counterculture, then it was Dan White. Though a Democrat, he was about as far from being progressive, as we would understand that word today, as you could get. Now, Dan was a square. As square as all heck. The son of a firefighter, he was the second of nine children born into an Irish-American Catholic family. Raised in a working-class neighbourhood of the city, he was valedictorian of his graduating class at Woodrow Wilson High School, after which he joined the army and served in Vietnam. A sergeant in the 101st Airborne Division, he was honourably discharged in 1971. After a brief stint working in Alaska, he returned home to join the San Francisco Police Department. After reporting on one of his fellow officers who had beaten a handcuffed African-American detainee, White resigned from the force and joined the fire department. In 1977, at the age of just 31, White was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors from a district that included largely white, blue-collar communities. Naturally, he was backed by his fire department union, which just so happened to also be one of the key allies of Harvey Milk, who was campaigning in a neighbouring district. This was not the only thing that the two men had in common. In fact, in many respects, their personal stories are very similar. Both had been athletes in their youth. Both were veterans, having served in active war zones. Both men had possessed respectable jobs, Milk as a Wall Street number cruncher and White as a cop-turned-firefighter, and both had decided to run for public office as Democrats in a city that they clearly loved. 
Elected in November of 1977, Milk in District 5 and White in District 8, they took their seats in the chamber of the Board of Supervisors on the same day in January the following year. They were allies, with White urging his political mentor, Diane Feinstein, the president of the board, to back Milk to become chairman of the Transportation Committee. Though he represented a fairly socially conservative district, there is little to suggest that White was much of a homophobe himself, at least relatively speaking for the time. He campaigned against a draconian 1978 ballot initiative in California that would have banned all openly gay men from working in public education. His personal feelings towards Milk at the start of their careers in elected office is perhaps best summed up by the fact that White asked him to attend the Catholic baptism of his newborn son. Milk readily accepted the invitation. However, their relationship soured when the Catholic Church petitioned the city to allow it to build a secure home for juvenile offenders in District 8. Like most politicians, White was of the NIMBY persuasion, not in my backyard. So, good Catholic boy though he was, he nonetheless opposed the location of the new facility in the area that he represented. Milk initially sided with his ally on this matter. However, he switched his vote, meaning that the facility was located in the 8th district. White was furious at what he regarded as a personal as well as a political betrayal. This, it seems, was the start of what became a better feud between the two men. White now opposed every measure that Milk put forward, including voting against a proposal to outlaw discrimination against gays and lesbians in education and housing. That legislation passed anyway. It was a massive boost for LGBT rights in the city, and a benchmark for other cities in the future. It was a legislative success for which Milk and his supporters were rightly extremely proud, and, with an estimated one quarter of all registered voters in San Francisco identifying as gay or lesbian, it was also a vote winner. Despite this victory, the struggle for civil rights for LGBT people still faced powerful foes. Fighting against a statewide ballot measure that would force California schools to fire gay teachers, or any member of staff that even supported gay rights, Milk addressed a gay pride event in San Francisco in the summer of 78. I ask my gay sisters and brothers to make the commitment to fight. For themselves, for their freedom, for their country. We will not win our rights by staying quietly in our closets. We are coming out to fight the lies, the myths, the distortions. We are coming out to tell the truths about gays, for I am tired of the conspiracy of silence, so I am going to talk about it. And I want you to talk about it. You must come out. Come out to your parents, your relatives. 
coming out to his parents was not something that Milk himself had ever done. His mother had died in the early 1960s, when Milk was a closeted Wall Street Republican. His father died in the early 70s, after Milk had come out, just not to him. That process, coming out, is a deeply personal thing. No one can fault Milk for not doing so to his parents, even though he urged others to do just that. And yet, we must recall that he had taken it upon himself to out a friend for political advantage. Strangely, the single most popular measure that Milk championed during his brief time in office, and the one on which he expended a good deal of his boundless energy, was the need to clean up dog excrement in the city. One of his aides recalled that Milk was a master at figuring out what could get him coverage in the media. In typical fashion, therefore, he chose to call a press gathering on this important subject in a city park. Just as the reporters and cameramen gathered around him, Milk accidentally stood in dog feces. Feigning shock, he declared that this was an example of why the city needed to clean up the mess. The pictures of Milk hamming it up, staring at the sole of his shoe in mock horror, made all the local newspapers and TV stations, and even got national media coverage. Of course, Milk had sent his aides out prior to the press gathering to select a spot where he was guaranteed to step in the offending article. This was classic Milk, and it worked. His so-called pooper-scooper law was passed, and he received more fan mail for this initiative than for any of his other efforts in City Hall. From comedy... Events soon turned to tragedy. On the 28th of August, Milk's then-boyfriend, Jack Lyra, committed suicide by hanging himself inside Milk's apartment. Just 23 years old when they first got together the previous year, Lyra, who had accompanied Milk to his inauguration on the steps of City Hall, was a homeless runaway from Mexico who suffered from alcoholism and depression. Milk, who discovered Lyra's body, was devastated. He had stuck by his lover even when political aides advised him to ditch the troubled young man, whose erratic behaviour posed a risk to Milk's career. On November 10th, Dan White resigned his seat on the Board of Supervisors, citing financial problems. The board didn't pay especially well and he was having problems with a restaurant business he had invested in. However, White had a change of heart a couple of weeks later, and decided that he wanted back on the board. Mayor Moscone told him, basically, to get stuffed. The mayor had already appointed a political ally to the vacant seat. Milk backed Moscone's decision. With White under financial stress, and apparently suffering from mental troubles and outbursts of rage, 
the stage was now set for a bloody denouement. In our last episode, we recounted the tragic day, November 27th, 1978, when Dan White went berserk in City Hall, killing the two fellow Democrats who had turned against him. Little more needs to be said on that matter, other than to reiterate that the death of Milk was not only a profound personal loss for the many people who knew and cared for him, but also a deeply felt setback for LGBT people in San Francisco and beyond. Milk might have been a latecomer to the struggle for gay liberation, but he had become one of the totemic figures in that struggle for civil rights. Political stunts aside, it is, of course, for his role as a gay leader that Milk is best remembered. History has largely passed over the various unflattering chapters in his journey from closeted conservative to flamboyant city supervisor. In my view, there is much about Milk's record that is either deeply unsettling or suspiciously incongruous. Yet, his role as an out gay man elected to public office at a time of profound homophobia and officially sanctioned bigotry is remarkable and a testament to his personal bravery. Milk knew and spoke to friends and advisers about the fact that he was an obvious target for assassination. He received vicious hate mail and lurid death threats and yet he would not be silenced. He put his life on the line on a daily basis just by being an out gay man in public life, and he hoped that by doing so others would be able to live the uncloseted life that he had shied away from for most of his 48 years. He loved the spotlight. As one friend put it, Politics provided the stage that he had always sought. From his teenaged years at the Met Opera in New York, to his sojourn in experimental theatre, to his amateur dramatics in front of the cameras in a San Francisco park, Milk lived for drama. It was only in the final months of his life that he found the right part. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. This was the concluding part of our look at the case of Harvey Milk. It is also the conclusion to this season of the show. For the past few months, we have focused on civil rights leaders. I've found this to be a fascinating and at times rather moving voyage through the history of social struggles. I hope that you've found it interesting too. Like I said in the mid-roll, on Thursday I will have a bonus episode on the twin assassination attempts against Gerald Ford in California in 1975. Then, next week, we'll release a recap of this season of the show, in which I will also give a sneak preview of the theme of next season. These are exclusives for our Patreon supporters. To join the club, please go to 
patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast. There, for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to special content and perks, whilst showing your support for a show that you enjoy. If you'd like to reach out to me, then please go to our website, assassinationspodcast.com, to get in touch. Or follow the show on Twitter, at AssassinsPod. And I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to give us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you next season, when we will continue our travels through the darker side of history. Until then, goodbye.